Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, I am on the line with Richard Socher. Richard is the Chief Scientist and EVP at Salesforce. Richard, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Aloha, great to be here. Nice to chat with you, Sam. You said aloha, and I was surprised that you're actually in the Bay Area. I always see these wonderful photos of you all over the place, uh, and I only get to ever see you in person at NeurIPS nowadays and uh, the Black and AI events and, and stuff like that. So it's great to get a chance to connect with you mid-year. How is everything? Life is, you know, pretty pretty good. I'm very grateful. Uh, our research uh, can continue working on some research during this crisis now too that that is specific uh, to COVID nineteen. And uh, but by and large, uh, I sometimes joke that the PhD uh, prepared me for several years for staying at home, eating pasta every day, and working on a computer all day. Uh, and uh, so so I'm I'm in pretty good uh, spirits, uh, trying to have a little bit of positive impact and and uh, still go about my work and make sure my team uh, is doing well throughout this crisis. And it's it's a tough time, uh, but I'm I'm very grateful uh, for the line of research. Uh, we can work remotely and uh, do quite well. Awesome, awesome. Glad to hear that. It is uh, don't usually you know do this, but it's April 10th that we're recording this. So what is it? Week four for you for lockdown shelter in place thereabouts. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. The time weirdly it's, it's slow and fast at the same time. Days morph into each other. Uh, you know, the home office is just the, the home and the office and everything. So yeah, time definitely does not seem linear going through this. It is very strange, but Hey, before we jump into some of the main topics that we want to cover, in particular language models and some of the recent work you've been doing, applying that to the bio space, you know, share with us a little bit about your background and how you came to work in AI. Sure. Boy, it, it almost starts uh, in, in high school when I really liked math and languages. Uh, and when you think about uh, those two fields, one you would hope is true, even if you go, you know, light years in some other direction. And language is this uh, constantly morphing uh, system where every, you know, teenager can just say YOLO and boom, you have a new word. And now the, the science of language has to deal with that. And so they marry when you try to use computers uh, to use math to, to try to understand language. So I studied linguistic computer science uh, back in uh, 2000, in the early 2000s. And that uh, at the time seemed kind of like an orchid, kind of cute, quixotic uh, niche topic uh, to my parents. And, <laughs> but I thought, man, if, if we can get computers to understand language, that would be just incredible. All the things they could do, you know, especially if you're lazy and you want every repetitive task to be done by a computer uh, would be quite amazing. And so that kind of morphed uh, into a couple of other interests and trying to use uh, eventually, initially just statistical machine learning, eventually sort of machine machine learning by itself, and then AI uh, more broadly uh, applied to computer vision problems. But I really do think in the end, language is the most interesting manifestation of human intelligence. Uh, there's some quite incredible visual systems and apparatuses in the animal kingdom, like the mantis shrimp with uh, all kinds of trifocal vision and so on in each eye. And 
uh, all of that. And a lot of animals have quite sophisticated visual systems, but it's really language that is connected to thought and culture and society and information. Uh, and so got really excited about language. And then in 2010, uh, I saw a, a handful of people apply neural network techniques uh, and extend them to uh, computer vision. And at the time, I had also just become a little bit disillusioned myself around how much time natural language processing folks spend on feature engineering. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought, couldn't we use some of these ideas uh, from computer vision uh, and neural networks uh, for natural language processing? And it was uh, not easy in the beginning, early days, uh, had a lot of rejected papers reviewers just ignoring reasonably good experimental results saying, oh, why are you submitting neural network stuff to this conference? This is not the 90s anymore. This stuff doesn't work and, and so on. Uh, but eventually, you know, more and more people kind of joined. Uh, there's a small core uh, that initially was really just Joshua Benjo and uh, Jeff Hinton's labs and, and Andrew Ng's lab uh, at Stanford. And, and it expanded more and more. And, and now it's kind of the default way for, of doing things is to use neural networks. Of course, uh, you know, they've uh, developed more and more uh, novel architectures too. And it's, it's just been super exciting. So now I, I work uh, not just on the research side anymore, uh, but also on a lot of applied problems. You know, in the end, I often think about trying to have impact. And in the end, when you do research, you hope that people will pick up that research Extend, uh, extend it and actually apply it to some real-world problems. But if you have the opportunity to both do research and apply it to real problems, you kind of reduce the variance uh, of the impact that you have. And so uh, I work on a lot of NLP problems for chatbots and service uh, and sales and marketing applications, trying to, for instance, automatically reply to emails or to phone conversations or having chat conversations uh, is a really great one. Also, we're doing a lot of stuff in computer vision, trying to identify different objects and supermarket shelves and doing complex OCR for forms and a lot of interesting things, recommendation engines, uh, voice, uh, machine translation. Now, the, the group is pretty large, and so we, we get to work on a lot of different things. You know, it's a, it's a research organization, but it's part of Salesforce, which we you know as kind of a... You know, do you still, does Salesforce still think of itself as a CRM company or is it much broader than that now? The term CRM has kind of expanded and now includes everything that you might do with a customer, right? So we're Uh one of the largest e-commerce platforms because customers buy stuff online. Uh, We're obviously the largest uh, sales service and marketing organization, but we also have helped companies integrate all their different data. Now with Tableau, we help people understand their customer data and do a lot of analytics behind it. Uh, and then we look at, you know, where are the customers? And uh, we help governments see their citizens as their customers and help them, uh, especially now also in this crisis, uh, build software really quickly, build chatbots so they can answer questions. You know, the in the end, if you go to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and you have a question, uh, chatbots that give you answers there are also, um, you know, you're a customer there of the DMV. Uh, we work with healthcare providers where the patients are customers. So the, mm-hmm. the definition of what a customer is is, is getting broader and broader, sure. and, and we're in all those areas. And so with the company being in all those areas and being a very product-focused company as opposed to you know an academic institution, you know how does the company balance investments in you know research uh, with 
product requirements and how does that specifically impact you and your team and what you decide to or you know end up working on? It's a great question and it's definitely something that uh, I think every company struggles with as they can sort of think past their uh, next quarter and think about you know the next couple of years. Uh, we I wear really a couple of different hats. Uh, on the pure research side, we really can uh, work on and have a lot of freedom uh, and we can work on a lot of different things and we basically look for what's what's the what could have the biggest impact on both the field of AI research as well as on application fields like uh, economics or and natural language processing or medicine even and then other areas so there we have a lot of freedom but then the uh, another large part of my group is really just part of engineering and we're building real products uh, like chatbots or case classification of emails or uh, opportunity and lead scoring where you know a salesperson might have 5000 people they could email or call on any given day and you can use systems to rank and say these customers are the most likely to actually want to buy your product today and then help them kind of uh, get through and triage that. Um, we work with marketing where we can uh, classify the sentiment of different uh, tweets, for instance, uh, or we can identify company logos on tweets and surface them. Uh, even if you don't say at or hashtag this company name, uh, we work with industries to uh, understand uh, supermarket shelves uh, and do visual things. So there are a lot. There's a lot of product development, and as long as that product development uh, uh, feels like, uh, and and we feel like we're having a lot of positive impact on the business through AI, we get to carve out a niche where we just think about all the stakeholders, not just the shareholders, but all the stakeholders uh, of the ecosystem. And there, uh, we can work on things like even uh, protein sequence models uh, and uh, medical computer vision, classifying different types of breast cancer, uh, and uh, a whole host of fundamental research problems and optimization uh, of neural networks, which is pretty theoretical, as well as on some really applied NLP projects that are actually very nicely at the intersection of pure research and applied research. So for instance, one paper uh, we've published a while back and have extended uh, for a while now on a sequence to SQL, where we translate natural language English questions into SQL queries. Hmm. And that is a fundamental problem. You try to disambiguate language uh, that sort of touches upon what is the meaning of a question, uh, which is actually really hard. And one way to define the meaning of a question is, well, it's a program that you, once you execute it over the right set of knowledge, will give you the correct answer to the question that the person uh, asking the question had in mind. And one way of doing that is to translate it into code or into SQL, because a lot of data in the world is stored in databases. And so uh, that is a very fundamental question that we actually started with pure research, but now with Tableau and other, you know, Einstein analytics and so on, uh, it is actually quite relevant. And business users might also want to ask questions like, how many customers uh, bought this particular product in this particular zip code uh, between you know this time range? And you just want to be able to answer that, ask that question in normal English language, and get a real answer for it. And so uh, there's a there are some more and more connections between the fundamental research group and the applied research group, and then all the product groups and engineering groups. That provides really interesting context for you know, talking a little bit about one of your recent papers, which is, and you mentioned this, uh, on protein generation. 
Mm-hmm. Even with all of that in mind, what was, how did you end up working on protein generation? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, originally, we're inspired by uh, language modeling. So we've, we've worked on language modeling for, boy, uh, almost four years uh, since we since MetaMind, my startup, got acquired by Salesforce uh, and for a while had the best language models. There were still LSTMs or quasi-recurrent neural networks and uh, variants of these with pointer mechanisms that could copy over words as they try to predict the next word. And it's a very interesting fundamental task uh, in, in natural language processing, right? In some ways, it's NLP complete in the sense that if you can always predict correctly what the next word is, then that means you can also do all of question answering, right? I can ask, you know, what's the capital of California? And then the next word should be the capital of California. And if you do that correctly, that means you have knowledge about the world. You can answer questions. You can ask, what is the translation of Ich liebe dich from German into English? And then you should get the translation as the next couple of words. So as you can get better and better at predicting the next word, uh, you might be able to solve a lot of different natural language processing problems. Uh, now, at the same time, that is kind of the long-term future. Nobody actually thinks that you're, you could be good enough, especially not a couple of years ago, to do all of these different NLP problems as, as, as language modeling. But originally, language modeling was just used to disambiguate words. For instance, if I ask you, what's the price of wood? Is this the, the wood, W-O-U-L-D, auxiliary verb? Or is it the W-O-O-D, the noun uh, from a tree would. And so, uh, but with the price of, it's much more likely to, to have a noun after. And so you can disambiguate, you know, either translation uh, or uh, speech recognition models, or you can come up with better uh, selection of uh, sentences that were generated by a translation model to say, this is more fluent of an English sentence uh, than another alternative. And so that was originally what language modeling was used for. But then, we are able with deep learning uh, and in our group and in other groups uh, and now all these transformer models and bird models and so on um, really get better at predicting not just the next word, but you can also predict words in the middle of the sentence and you train really good uh, general representations of language that capture general knowledge. Uh, we actually use these kinds of language models to give explanations uh, for why you may uh, choose a certain classification output. And it turns out that in several cases, they actually capture common sense even, which is really hard to capture in a logical or database kind of structure. Can you give some examples of what you're describing there? Yeah, sure. So uh, the the paper uh, was done by Nazmin and our group uh, at Salesforce Research. And uh, basically, she created uh, natural language explanations for uh, common sense reasoning questions. And so the paper was, uh, we have actually a couple, um, but one was explain yourself, leveraging language models for common sense reasoning. And so the idea here is we had a couple of different uh, multiple choice questions. And in, uh, if you want to give the answer, you also ideally will say why you gave uh, that particular answer. So uh, for instance, if you push a glass off the table, what will happen? A, it'll float, B, it will uh, fall down uh, or and break and, and things like that. And then you will basically say, oh, why will it uh, fall down? Because of gravity. And so this seems like a simple thing. And for any particular small 
uh, scenario, you could possibly generate all the logical consequences. But if you think about anything like... I was going to say, it seems like a simple thing for anyone who's not involved in AI. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you go and say, oh, the person blows the leaves from a grass area using the blower. The blower, A, puts the trimming product over her face in another section. B, is seen up close with different attachments. C, continues to blow uh, mulch all over the yard several times and so on. So, you know, these kinds of questions and knowing how to answer that, it just requires a lot of common sense. And common sense is incredibly hard to really uh, formulate in a knowledge representation such that AI models can really make use of it. So long story short, I got a little bit off of a tangent there. Language modeling, super fascinating. Lots of other applications that people hadn't thought about uh, that, that came out in the last couple of years. And uh, in our case, we also wanted to actually make it more controllable. We had these uh, interesting uh, language modeling results from OpenAI that could actually generate uh, long texts. And it was quite surprising to a lot of people that these models were so good at doing that at the time. Mm -hmm. But all you could do is you prime it with the beginning of a sentence. You say like a knife, and then it would just kind of ramble on and on. And we thought, couldn't we make this more controllable? So we added control codes uh, based on different training data uh, and based on basically the whole internet. So you can make a control code and say, this is a horror story. Now say a knife and then, you know, sort of peek through the keyhole of the door and the door slightly started creaking and opening and you say, oh my God, what's going on? But you can also say a knife and then say, give me a review. And so just say, oh, the knife is really great at cutting. It fits well into our kitchen and so on. You could basically control the language modeling a little bit better. And we thought that would make it more useful. Uh, and now people can kind of collaborate uh, with these models to generate texts. Uh, and it almost helps you if you're going you know, try to do creative writing too, uh, to give you sort of spitball with you and just generate stuff. And then you can modify it. Uh, you can create marketing messages and have control codes based on these were successful marketing campaigns. And of course, you know, you have certain things in mind. So you want to kind of play with the model and its output. So that was control. And that paper, just for folks, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, but that's conditional transformer language model for controllable generation, CTRL. That's exactly right. And uh, that is the largest uh, Model is 1.6 billion parameter language model. You train it on a very large corpus. You can create uh, any URL as a control token that will talk in the language of that URL in like cnn.com and so on. It's quite fascinating. And for a while, we we're actually worried also that it might have uh, ethical issues. But really, uh, I don't think that is the case. People, uh, unlike GANs that generate images, uh, People thought images were, you know, despite Photoshop, people still thought of images as uh, a good proof for something. Uh, you can forever in human history, since we've had language, just misattribute text to somebody else. You can just write an email and say, oh, this other person sent the email. I'm like, well, you we have to actually show metadata to really verify that that is a, really something that somebody said. So mm -hmm. I don't think uh, it helps with sort of creating misinformation also because you, while it's more controllable in terms of the style now uh, with con with CTRL or control, uh, you still can't force it to say the things that are in your head. <laughs> like you want to, usually when you want to create misinformation campaigns, you have something specific in mind that you would like the models to say. But long story short. Quick question on that. The uh, control codes, you mentioned you can generate them from any URL. When you have something like a review or 
a a movie or horror, I think was the example you used. Does that particular code map to a specific URL that you've selected or is there um, something more to that mechanism? Great question. So the control codes are very broad. Uh, You can say like this is Wikipedia or like a Wikipedia style or coming from Wikipedia-like training data. Uh, It can be just a URL. It could be a a style like a kid's story or horror story. Like you you can have any set of control codes and one set of control codes are URLs. Like you can say, create me a Kickstarter campaign for like some new gadget that you come up with and it'll literally write you a Kickstarter campaign uh, with that URL. It's uh, it's actually pretty hilarious what people have been able to generate with it in terms of the text. And the control codes, those are, um, you're providing those to the model at inference time. They're not baked in during the training process. Is that correct? So they are in that we use the whole internet as the training data. And so every URL uh, had, was in some way a control code. Sure, but you don't have to specify a subset of the internet that will serve as your control codes later while you're training. You don't training. have to, yeah. You don't have to, but you can. But you so, can. Yeah, the control codes are very general. Uh, and some of them where we knew, uh, for instance, uh, where they came from, like Wikipedia, we can kind of stylize them uh, and we had certain groups uh, of, of documents where we said, all right, these are all Wikipedia articles. So let's just you know say this is the style of Wikipedia. It's very factual. Mm-hmm. You don't just ramble on. You don't use uh, colloquial language and things like that. And so can you kind of describe the, the general mechanism that the model is using to base output on these control codes? Sure. Um, so essentially... In a language model, uh, you have a sequence of words, and at at the end, you have a classifier, and that classifier goes over the whole vocabulary. Sometimes that vocabulary uh, can be just the characters of the English language, for instance. Sometimes the vocabulary can be full words, and in some cases, they're so-called byte pair encodings. I don't want to get too technical, but it's basically like character sequences that are very frequent. And... Uh, you can basically at each time step classify what's the next most likely token that you want to generate. And the control code tokens are just another input in the beginning of these language models and say, this is uh, the current input. And then after that, you say now start, you know, you can also have a sequence of, of words to prime the model further. And then it just continues to generate. So it's essentially just another input also in a vector representation uh, based on on these control tokens. I'm trying to get at what's special. Like if I took GPT-2, for example, and you know started my prompt with Wikipedia, mm-hmm. I'm imagining that wouldn't produce the same effect as your model conditioned on Wikipedia as your token. That's right, yeah. Because the original language models just took raw text. They didn't think about mm-hmm. metadata of that text. So it's really uh, hard to say like a knife and then control like in which direction you want that to go it'll mm-hmm. generate whatever is the most likely based on all of the text it's seen okay right so you have no no way of controlling it in any which direction you want it to go do you want to have a colloquial story do you want to have a tweet do you want to have uh, a very factual story that sounds very you know standard uh, and so on so this is kind of the metadata associated with with language and you can use that to control where the output uh, is headed and in which general direction it should be. So then we train these language models. Uh, it's quite exciting. Uh, and uh, we, we released the whole model. 
And it's it's basically the largest model that would still fit on, on fit on a general GPU that you can get on AWS, like a P100. Um, and, and once it's larger, there are some larger language models that people have trained, but they become impossible for anybody else to run. Like, We're up to uh, like 17 billion parameters now, that's Microsoft. Right. That's right. And so, you know, and NVIDIA had some other ones, but they're just like, okay, if you have a gigantic, you know, million dollar cluster, then uh-huh. you, can, you can do this or you want to spend uh, a lot of money per hour uh, of even just loading it up and, and, and so on. So we felt like this would democratize a little bit what these methods can do. Uh, and allow basically anybody who can spawn a reasonably cheap AWS instance to play around with these models and and fine tune them too and, and make them work for their uh, their particular use cases. And then we thought about what what would other use cases be? Where else do you have data and you want to generate uh, useful sequences? And uh, that uh, in, in our group we have uh, Ali Madani, uh, who's a great researcher in our group. He's worked in some uh, medical applications uh, around uh, computer vision too. Uh, and he basically wanted to study the language of biology uh, and basically try to generate proteins in a controllable fashion. And proteins, uh, and I don't want to get too technical on the bio side, also I'm not a biologist, but basically proteins govern everything uh, in human biology, in our bodies, and viruses, everything. And so this AI system, which we called Progen uh, for protein generation uh, with this uh, controllable language model, is this really high capacity language model that was trained on the largest protein database that's available. So we had 280 million protein samples. And now we can actually do something that's really challenging for science and basically unlock the potential of protein engineering for synthetic biology, material science, and human health. And we started this project uh, almost a year ago uh, and at the time, we thought about, you know, really pressing uh, diseases like cancer and, and others uh, or material science where you can try to generate bacteria that might eat plastic and things like that. So it was pretty mm-hmm. broad. Uh, and it's a super fascinating area of research that I think can have a lot of uh, positive potential for the world and the environment and people. But now, of course, uh, it's COVID-19 is, is on everybody's mind and uh, it turns out that even there, uh, like two years ago, the Nobel Prize in Medicine uh, was started to, uh, or was given to a team that built, uh, was able to create, synthesize new proteins that didn't exist before to, that had a specific function. And in the case of these control tokens, now the functions can be a, a specific type of control token, like make the, the cell glow or uh, make this uh, particular cell uh, be a a spike protein for a specific receptor and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly uh, what we can now do for for trying to work uh, on on viruses and and, uh, antibodies and and things like that to try to generate the right antibody and and things like that. So is it just me or is it pretty amazing that you know, we can now build AI models that we're solving, you know, that can be applied to what a couple of years ago won a Nobel Prize. Yeah, well, so yes and no. I mean, I, I, we, I don't want to push that too far. But that's right, that's right. And so we, we, have, to, we have to be careful. Uh, it's still very ongoing research and I don't want to hype it up too much until we have more real results. But basically, the previous line of research that won the Nobel Prize, they basically randomly permuted these proteins to, and then tested out many, many iterations 
until they found something that would have the actual biology and functions that they wanted. And in our case, we're able to reduce uh, the search space because, you know, there, there are a lot of potential uh, protein sequences that you might get with these random permutations. But if you had a sense from reading 280 million of these proteins before, you had a sense of what's a reasonable structure, what's most likely to come after this sequence of uh, characters and amino acids and so on, uh, then you might create much more uh, guided uh, and directionally uh, correct proteins. And we actually see, you know, the energy, how stable they would be. And there are a couple of metrics uh, that we show uh, in the ProGen paper uh, that the proteins that this model generates are much more likely to be viable, to be synthesized and to have the functions that you want them to have than randomly permutated ones. And that's obviously a relatively low baseline, right? Random permutation is not that okay. so <laughs> better than, than random permutation, but it's really hard because the human AI, the human intelligent system has evolved uh, over many, many years. To, to, that's right. Uh, <laughs> to, to do deal with human language and the statistics yeah. and correlations that human language has. And so we're not very good at looking at, you know, A, B, like. Right. B, F, so the contribution B. here is not that you're making a dent in this actual problem, but rather that you're applying this language model that is built on human language to a totally different type of language that kind of underlies biology. That's correct. And now, and then we show that this new tool can be useful for a broad range uh, of, of uh, applications. And now we're actually collaborating with people to, to actually go and, and generate and synthesize these proteins. And we're partnering uh, with a lot of different universities. And uh, there's a lot of exciting space, uh, a lot of exciting work in this space, but it's all a little bit too early to, to tell. We just uh, released uh, ProGen, and so now uh, sort of follow-up work is, is in the pipeline. And so can you go into that follow-up a little in a little bit more detail in the sense of to you know validate the results of this model, what has to happen? It, it sounds like it's what it's ultimately producing is candidate proteins that have to then be validated uh, experimentally. Is that the idea? Or that's basically it. Yeah. You first want to generate them computationally. Then you want to synthesize, synthesize the actual proteins in real biology, create the molecules. Then you mm -hmm. want to see if uh, on a very simple chemistry level, they would actually exhibit uh, the functions that you want. If you then think you have some successful candidates, then you would want to run some animal studies. And mm -hmm. eventually you hope to create new antibodies, new uh, ways to deal with uh, and, and uh, protect people from certain diseases long line those are many many steps and, and obviously yeah. we don't have a wet lab and things like that so we're gonna right. have to partner <laughs> with people on that we, we only go so far <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh is there to your knowledge is there a role for simulation or uh, do we are we not there in terms of simulating protein structure before you go and actually synthesize you could, and I guess uh, some people work work in that space. It might also be helpful. It turns out it's not actually that expensive to synthesize a protein. It's about ten bucks, okay. uh, and so uh, depending on the time, cost, computation trade offs, and so on, uh, you and if you're really reasonably certain that you're able to give good candidates to be actually synthesized, then maybe you can just yeah. synthesize them too. But yeah, it's, okay. it's like I said, it's very early work. Synthetic biology as a field has been around for a while, but it's still quite nascent in comparison to a lot of other fields. So I don't want to 
go into too many details until we have some more more concrete results. Yeah, yeah. And is the you know the idea in this line of work around language models to you know, hey, we've got some interesting thing here with proteins. Let's you know push that a lot further. Or hey, we you know demonstrated that we can apply this to you know this biological code what other types of codes or languages are that we can apply this to like where where are you headed with this general uh you know line of research so i think there are a couple of really exciting areas uh, of research uh, several of which have connections to language models in some ways i think of a three equivalent super tasks of nlp actually uh, language modeling is one question answering is another and dialogue systems is the third and they're equivalent in terms of in the sense that every nlp problem can be cast as one of those three tasks uh, and uh, you know you can send them an analysis people think of it as just classification but really if you ask here's a sentence yes what is the sentiment of the sentence then the next uh, word that you predict should be uh, that you know the classification uh, and the label that that sentence has so even sentiment analysis can be seen as question answering, and then everything that's question answering is also language modeling. And in some ways, <laughs> those insights were kind of irrelevant because people said that, yeah, but so what? But now we actually have these models with billions of parameters, and we may actually be able to build a single model for all of NLP. And that's been kind of my dream ever since I started in 2010 training these neural nets uh, on, on language. And because I realized the underlying substrate matters less and less, it becomes more and more important, I think, in the future to be able to train these large neural network architectures for multiple tasks. So you can have transfer learning between them. You can get to zero shot learning tasks. Like I want to be able to have NLP systems that answer questions that they haven't seen before in the training data. And mm -hmm. getting better at that, there are examples like that in Squad, the Stanford question answering data set, uh, but it mostly extracts phrases from, an in, from a document and doesn't really have to capture complex knowledge uh, in and of itself. Uh, but language models are very tied uh, to this. Uh, also, for I think one of the most exciting and least solved tasks of our time, and that is summarization. Uh, we've had a bunch of summarization mm -hmm. papers in the group too. Uh, Wojciech in, in our group has just uh, released one on factual uh, correctness and consistency of uh, summaries. It turns out the whole field of summarization worked with pretty bad data sets. And, and including ourselves, some of the models that were very, we called them abstractive uh, versus extractive. So the difference there is extractive summarization just takes chunks and phrases and sentences from the original document you want to summarize yeah. and just says, this is an important sentence, and then you have it. Uh, whereas abstractive, you have the hope that you would understand what's going on, and then you can rephrase it in a different or shorter form. Uh, and, and some of these language models get us closer to being able to do that. That's exactly right. But it turns out they also often learn to copy phrases from the input uh, right. in just a really clever way. And so long story short, the biggest problem uh, for NLP and summarization is, for instance, that uh, first names, proper nouns, are often have similar vector representations. So Jason, Jeremy, John, uh, they all look like uh, similar to to these neural network models. They are a list mm -hmm. of 500 roughly similar numbers. Uh, and the problem with that is that in a summary, it's really crucial. Like when you say like there's some murder or, you know, an accident or something, you mix up the names, 
it's really, really different, right? But to a model, yeah. this isn't really that different. And to all the evaluation metrics of the field of summarization, you don't get really dinged hard uh, and reduce your your metrics by mixing up one name with, with another. But for people, it's very crucial. And so uh, looking at factual uh, consistency and accuracy uh, of summarization is, is something that we care about a lot uh, and, and are actively working on. And there's, again, a connection to, to language models, too. Huge uh, commercial implications of this. Like we're all inundated with textual data. And, you know, if we could easily and cost effectively and accurately summarize that, that would be huge. I'm just speaking from personal experience and 500 open browser tabs. <laughs> That's exactly right. I think it's uh, a super impactful uh, technology for our time where. Ignorance is almost a choice uh, for, for most people, uh, right? But the fact is that there's too much information and it's hard mm -hmm. to really get through it. And that's what AI is really good, good at, right? Uh, take laborious tasks that just don't scale with people and automate them for us. Mm -hmm. And going, you know, first full circle or at least circling back to Progen, um, I've talked to folks that are uh, not necessarily trying to apply uh, summarization uh, to scientific literature, but to otherwise use AI to mine insights from scientific literature and kind of project into, you know, where future innovation might come from. And, you know, summarization that is, you know, that preserves kind of the scientific uh, essence, the facts of a, mm -hmm. you know, a research paper could be a step in that direction as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, Researchers, like everybody else, are, are inundated with too much information, right? If you try to follow the archive uh, and, and see all the new papers that come around AI in just specific fields, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to keep up with the literature uh, and still do your own work and not just be reading nonstop. Yeah. Uh, and so I think summarization is going to become more exciting. And now that we have solved other tasks that uh, can be a little less ambiguous, uh, the the field of NLP can kind of move towards these these tougher, more ambiguous kinds of tasks. What do I mean by this? So, for instance, machine translation, uh, you have a pretty small set of uh, outputs that make sense given an input sentence from German that you want to translate into English. Sure, there may be like two or three different variants. Like, thank you can be translated as vielen Dank or Dankeschön. Like, there are two two options, but it doesn't make sense to just say like. Cats on toots, or just cat and dog. Like it, so you have a pretty small variance in the outputs that make sense for that input to be generated. On the other hand, in summarization, boy, there's so many possible variants. And uh, when you think about it, in the end, summarization is also highly contextual and needs to, in the limit, be highly personalized. Uh, for instance, when Elmo came out, the first sort of language model uh, that had really, really good representations. Uh, personally, to me, a good summary of that paper would have been, oh, it's like Cove, contextual vectors, but instead of trained with machine translation, it's trained as a language modeling objective. And it works really, really well on a lot of different tasks. But if you don't know what Elmo or language models or word vectors are, that is a completely useless summary. And really, a, a good summary of that paper introduces you and maybe pulls in even text from elsewhere and helps mm -hmm. you understand what is going on in the first place with this field and then gives you sort of the incremental novelty of that, uh, you know, new research result that comes out. So 
And, and the same is true for, for every sort of conflict you might follow on Earth, or if you read you know, COVID-19 news every day, uh, you don't need to know, oh, there's a virus. But if you just came from Antarctica and, you know, for last month, and all of a sudden there's a lot of new stuff, uh, your, the summaries would be very, very different. And obviously there's different sort of reading levels if you're doing summarization for kids versus adults and, and so on. So I think summarization, there's a lot of interesting things that we can still do in that field. Well, Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to catch up with me and share with all of us what you're up to there. That sounds like really cool stuff and looking forward to checking in more frequently uh, with you and keeping up with what you're doing there. Yeah. Love your podcast and uh, always, always enjoy talking about AI. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.